As Marcus said, our, our sermon this morning is from Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 15 to 20. So let me invite you to turn there now, and I'll read it for us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. The Apostle Paul writes, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Please join me in prayer one more time. Father, glorify your name, glorify the name of your son Jesus in the preaching of your word. Help me, help us. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer through Christ. Amen. Well, if you have watched uh, many, or really almost any, animated Disney movies, uh, you might have observed a particular pattern in Disney's plot lines. The pattern goes something like this. Uh, early on in the story, usually as we are getting to know the characters, there's usually a song a fun song, an upbeat song. There's usually a song celebrating the excellence or the greatness or the preeminence of the main character. So if you've seen Aladdin, you might remember the song Prince Ali. Prince Ali, fabulous he, Ali Ababwa, strong as ten regular men, definitely. He's faced the galloping hordes, a hundred bad guys with swords. Who sent those goons to their lords? Why, Prince Ali. Or maybe you saw the Lion King, and you remember Simba singing about, he just can't wait to be king. I'm going to be a mighty king. Enemies beware. I've never seen a king of beasts with quite so little hair. I'm going to be the main event like no king was before. I'm brushing up on looking down. I'm working on my roar. Or maybe you've seen Frozen. Maybe you've heard once or twice, or if you have a young daughter, 763,000 times, Elsa singing about how awesome she is because there's no right, no wrong, no rules for her. Right? She sings, let it go, let it go, I'll rise like the break of dawn. Let it go, let it go, that perfect girl is gone. Here I stand in the light of day, let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. Right? There's a pattern in Disney movies that toward the beginning of the movie, there's usually a song celebrating how awesome the main character is. And the pattern continues, right? Most often as the movie progresses, the main guy or the main girl actually has to walk back the bravado of the song, right? The main character usually doesn't live up to what's sung about them. Or when they try to do that, everything falls to pieces, right? Prince Ali's wealth and power don't actually win Princess Jasmine's heart. They end up leading him to lie to her. When Simba thinks that being a king is all about him, he almost gets himself and Nala killed. And when Elsa decides to let it go, she turns her whole kingdom into a popsicle. Right? Part of the plot is usually that the main guy has to walk back his boast. 
and to succeed in some secular version of humility. Right? Disney's hype up the awesomeness of the main character song is fun, uh, but it's some kind of tongue-in-cheek because even Disney, which is not a source of spiritual wisdom, uh, knows that when your song is about how awesome you are and when you live like you're the center of the universe, you really foul things up. Well, in our sermon text this morning, the Apostle Paul, who wrote our text, is not writing a Disney movie. He is not inventing an entertaining or even an inspiring story. No, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing the totally true and entirely trustworthy words of the living God in his letter to the Colossians. And in our passage this morning, in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, uh, we find that immediately after Paul has greeted the Colossians in verses 1 and 2, and he's told them about his thanksgiving to God for them in verses 3 to 8, and about his prayer for them in verses 9 to 14, Paul, in our passage, transitions into what most Bible commentators believe is a theologically rich song about the preeminence of Jesus Christ. That's what our text is this morning. It's a song or maybe a poem, perhaps written by Paul, I think written by Paul, or maybe just included by Paul from another source, about the preeminence or the above-all-else-ness of Jesus Christ. And unlike the other hype songs that Disney's written, You can read the whole letter to Colossians, you can read the whole Bible, and you'll find that nothing that Paul says about Jesus gets walked back. Jesus Christ lives up to everything that Paul sings about him in this passage. In fact, it's in this text, in this song, that Paul really lays the foundation for the rest of what he says in his letter to the Colossians. So if you were to read all the way through Colossians in one sitting— which, by the way, you can do in about 12 minutes. Uh, You'll notice that in our passage, verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1, Paul introduces several themes uh, that reappear throughout the letter. So in chapter 2, Paul will start to address the dangers of some false teaching that are creeping in and threatening to take the Colossians captive. And in chapters 2 to 4, Paul is really instructing the Colossians about how they are to live their Christian lives in a variety of ways. And as Paul does these things in chapters 2 through 4, Paul weaves the theology from this song into his instructions as the theological ground or foundation for what he tells them. So, brothers and sisters, I think that we learn something deeply important about the Christian life from the the fact that Paul has made the theological foundation of his letter a song. Right here at the outset of Colossians, Paul is doing more than just teaching us. You know this. Songs and poems don't just inform us. Songs and poems engage our emotions and our affections. Right? Songs and poems express what our hearts most value, treasure, love, fear, That's why Disney movies have so many songs, because Disney knows how to grab little children by their feelings to make bank at the box office, right? Songs like the one that Paul is writing, they don't just describe a subject, they celebrate a subject. They revel in the glories of their subject. And so what I think we're meant to see from Paul's choice of genre in this passage is that in the Christian life, more foundational than our outward actions, which are very important, uh, more more foundational than our doctrinal commitments, which are extremely important, is our doxology or our worship or, if you like, what our hearts sing about. For the Apostle Paul, central to the Christian life is what you sing about Jesus. 
So my friend, forgive me for putting this in a cheesy way, uh, but what does your heart sing about? What lights you up? What gets you going? What moves you to song? A Christian, at the deepest level of your person, do you cherish? Do you treasure? Do you worship? Do you sing about Jesus Christ and his preeminence and his glory? I confess that sometimes I struggle to do that. Well, maybe the Apostle Paul's song uh, can help us with that this morning. Uh, before we dive into the details of our text, let me show you just very briefly uh, why most commentators believe that this passage is a song. So two main reasons. First reason is for most of chapter one, really all of chapter one, Paul talks repeatedly about we and us, right, Paul and Timothy, and you your, y'all, the Colossians. He mentions them repeatedly. The only section in chapter 1 where those characters are absent is verses 15 to 20. It's like in verses 15 to 20, Paul transcends his personal context and gives us something that fits in a broader context. So, suggests that he's putting different material in there. And the second really and more compelling reason that this is a song is that what Paul writes here has a very clear structure to it, as many people has observed. So I have asked the AV team if we can put on the projectors kind of a skeletal outline of the song that the Apostle Paul has written. Um, there we go. So it's not super clear, but I've put repeated words in this song into different colors. So you can see the song has two verses with a centerpiece. Verse 1 starts with who is, the second line says firstborn, and then gives us a reason why, for, and then we learn that through Jesus and for Jesus are all things. There's a bridge between these two verses, all three lines of the bridge start with and, and then verse 2, the pattern repeats, right? Who is firstborn for, through Jesus, for Jesus, right? That's kind of how our songs work. So hopefully uh, that highlights the reasons that we believe this is a song, and, and really as we go forward, illuminates the meaning of what Paul tells us. You, thank you, you can take the, the picture down. Well, as you might imagine, each verse of this song uh, doesn't just have its own structure, each verse kind of centers around its own point. Uh, so with the rest of our time this morning, I, I just want us to look at the passage under two headings, and each heading will be the main point of one of the verses. Uh, so, our outline this morning is first, the point of the first verse of the song, that Jesus is preeminent in creation. That's our first point. Jesus is preeminent in creation. And then in, in the second verse of the song, uh, what we see is that Jesus is preeminent in redemption. Jesus is preeminent in creation, verse 1, bridge, verse 2, Jesus is preeminent in redemption. So let's start there with that first verse. And in our Bible, these are verse numbers 15 and 16. That's our first point. And as I've said, Paul's first main point is that Jesus is preeminent or supreme in creation. Look at that first thing that Paul says about Jesus there in verse 15. Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you were to ask a careful reader of the Old Testament, who is the image of God? The answer that you should get is humankind, right? That's very clear from the text that Kyle read for us from Genesis 1. Adam and Eve and you and I as their descendants were created in or as the image of God. We've said this in the past two weeks, just like God is perfectly good and wise and righteous and loving, so Adam and Eve and you and I were created to be minifigures or pictures or mirrors that show off what God is like in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we relate to God, and in a way that we rule over God's creation. So what I believe Paul is saying here is that before Adam was God's created human image on earth, God the Son 
was already the eternal divine image of God the Father. So stay with me here. These These are deep waters, but Paul thinks that we need to swim in them. Paul's teaching here concerns the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is that there is one God, and this one God has existed for all of eternity uh, before creation in three distinct persons who are equally divine. God the Father, God the Son, who took on human flesh and became a man named Jesus, uh, and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches this doctrine of the Trinity or the tri-unity of God all over the place, especially in the New Testament. And here in this passage, Paul reminds the Colossians of a truth about God the Son, as he's called prior to our passage there in verse 13, his beloved Son. Paul writes that Jesus, before he was a man, before he was named Jesus by his human parents. In fact, before the creation of the world, before Adam was the created human image of God, God the Son was already the exactly and gloriously accurate picture of what God the Father is like. Paul is saying that God the Father's image of himself is a person, and that person is none other than God the Son, whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. The theologians have speculated a lot about this. Uh, This subject is called the processions of the persons of the Trinity, how they relate to one another. And I'm hesitant to say much about this mystery too confidently, uh, but just think for a second on the names which God the Son receives in Scripture to help us understand who He is from all eternity, right? He is the Son of the Father, John 1. He is the Word or the self-expression of the Father, John 1. He is the image or the picture of the Father, Colossians 1. He is the radiance of the glory of the Father and the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Hebrews chapter 1. Right? Do you see that these names communicate that the Son is distinct from, but inseparably begotten of or proceeding from the Father in such a way that the defining characteristic of God the Son is that He is exactly like God the Father in His glory. So I used to think that this verse, Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. I used to think that it was mainly about Jesus after he became a man. And certainly, Jesus the man is the image of God. But as you can tell from the next two lines of the poem, Paul is specifically talking about who the Son is before the creation of the world. God the Son is the eternal divine image of God the Father. And by the way, that's why Jesus is supremely qualified to reveal God the Father in history after the creation of the world, right? That's also very clear, again, from what Brian read from John 1. Again and again, the Bible teaches that the supreme revelation of God is the person, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, exact radiance of the Father, become a man, right? You see, the eternal, divine, uncreated image of God took on a human nature to be a created representative image bearer of God. Remember, Brian read for us, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, the Son, He has made Him known when He became flesh. You might remember the conversation between Jesus uh, and Philip In John chapter 14, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Which is like, what, Philip, what are you thinking? And Jesus says to Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long, and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Brothers and sisters, as we gather week after week to see 
Jesus Christ revealed from every page of God's Word, we are looking at the image of the invisible God. We are knowing, beholding, communing with the eternal God in the revelation of Jesus Christ through His Word. And that's why we were created. What does Jesus say in John 17? Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. As the image of the invisible God, Jesus is uniquely qualified to do the most important job in creation, which is to reveal God to creation. Paul continues there in verse 15. He, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So we hear that word firstborn, and we just think childborn first in order. Uh, But in the Bible, because the male who is born first often enjoyed a special privilege and prominence and authority, uh, the word firstborn is sometimes used to describe a title or, or an office with authority. So let me give you two examples from the Bible. First example, once again, is Adam. Again, Kyle read for us in Genesis chapter 1 that Adam was created by God, not before all the other animals, but actually after them on day 6. Well, interestingly, Jewish commentaries on Genesis 1 call Adam the firstborn because, as Kyle read, God told Adam to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth, right? Adam is the firstborn because he's preeminent and because he rightly rules over God's creation. That's his office. Second biblical example of the firstborn is King David. In Psalm 89, uh, the psalmist is recounting God's promises uh, to King David and to David's offspring. And in Psalm 89, 27, uh, God's word says this about David. This is God speaking about David and symbolically about David's son, God says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on earth. Now, it's significant to know that David was not literally the firstborn in his family. He was actually the youngest of a big slew of brothers. But when God makes David king, David becomes the firstborn because he is the preeminent ruler. And specifically, Look, hear what the verse says. It says, to be the firstborn is to be, quote, the highest of the kings on earth. So when Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation, his point is that the Son of God occupies the preeminent place of rule over everything that's ever been created. Jesus is, in other words, the boss. To be clear, God the Son was not created. He always existed. As we say in the Nicene Creed, He was eternally begotten of the Father. There was not a moment when the firstborn was born. But from the moment of creation, the Son has always occupied the office of the firstborn. Brothers and sisters, have you noticed that not every week, but almost every week in the pastoral prayer, when we bring our needs to God, we pray that God would bless us with good government, that God would give those in authority over us wisdom, because we know that when authorities govern well, it leads to much blessing. When there is order and liberty, as we heard from Genesis 2 a few weeks ago, when there are just and right laws well enforced, that promotes human flourishing. So, brothers and sisters, what good news is it that the firstborn of all creation is the perfectly good and wise Son of God? Things are out of order in our world right now, if you haven't noticed. But one day, God will bring all things back into subjection to the firstborn, and His righteous, flourishing, promoting reign will know no end. Praise God that Jesus, the Creator, is the firstborn. 
Again, I think that Paul is talking about who the Son is from eternity past. But do you notice that it's especially appropriate that when God the Son, who's been the firstborn forever, when He becomes a man, it's especially appropriate that He would take Adam's job and that He would sit on David's throne because He's already been the firstborn from all eternity right? The already divine and eternal firstborn in the history of redemption becomes the human firstborn, right? We might say that Jesus' eternal divine resume perfectly fits his historical human job description. Can you see the wisdom and glory of God in that? What a wonderful thing that God has made His Son, not only the ruler of all things from creation, but the restoring ruler of all things in His human Son, Jesus Christ. It's as though at His resurrection and exaltation, God the Father hands all authority in heaven on earth to the man Christ Jesus. And I'm making this up, but to illustrate the point, it's as though God the Father says, hey, you got that? That's a lot of authority there, Jesus. That's a lot of authority for a man. And Jesus says, yeah, I got it. I've done this before. I've already been the firstborn. I've already ruled the world with supreme authority. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Well, why? What puts him in that office? What makes him eternally supreme over all creation? I'm so glad you asked. Look there at verse 16. Paul tells us exactly why Jesus is the firstborn. And this, I think, is why Paul has been talking about who Jesus is from eternity. Paul writes, for by him all things were created. Paul is teaching that God the Son is the preeminent ruler of the whole wide world because he made the whole wide world. Right? This is clear from the text again that Brian read for us. All things were made through him, just in case you missed it. And without him was not anything made that was made. Kids, Any kids in here today? Kids? Any kids? Hey, kids. So glad you're here, kids. Very good, very good. Listen, kids, this is so important. The Bible teaches that Jesus created everything. The Bible teaches that Jesus created everything. Jesus created the day and the night and the sky, and the land, and the sea, and the moon, and the stars, and the sun, and the trees. Jesus created the plants, the vegetables, the peaches, the strawberries, the watermelon that we eat on 4th of July. Jesus created everything. Jesus created the birds, and the fish, and the cows, and the dogs, and the cats, and the squirrels, and the geese that don't get out of the way while I'm jogging around the pond. Jesus created, kids, listen, kids, Jesus created all of the people, all of them. Jesus created your mom and dad. Jesus created your teachers. Jesus created your friends. And you know what? Jesus created you. Jesus created you. And you know what? You weren't just created by Jesus. You were created by for Jesus. That's why you're here. Jesus made you so that you would know him. And that means that you are important. You're not important because you're smart. You're not important because you're cool. You're not important because you're cute. You're not important because you're funny. You're not important because you're good at sports. The reason that you're important is because Jesus made you in his image to know him and to love him and to be known by him. Adults, that is why Jesus is worthy of our love and reverence and submission as the firstborn, because as Paul writes, by him all things were created. Just in case we missed it, Paul makes it really clear that when he says all things, he means all all the things. So Paul writes that Jesus created all things in heaven 
or on earth. If it's not in earth, then it's in heaven. Either way, Jesus made it. All things visible and invisible. Is it visible? Yes, Jesus made it. Is it visible? No, then it's invisible. Guess what? Jesus made that too. That's everything. Right, and then notice, Paul lists four very specific things that Jesus made there in the middle of verse 16, right? Look with me. He says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Okay, so what are those? Well, I think that the best explanation is that Paul is mainly talking about spiritual beings or spiritual and invisible but very real heavenly beings. And in the Bible, these invisible spiritual authorities have kind of a complicated connection with earthly authorities. So I I do think that Paul sort of kind of is talking about earthly governments, the government of Virginia, the government of the United States. But from the way that he uses these words in Colossians and Ephesians, I think he's mainly talking about spiritual beings that have authority and exercise influence, even if it's invisible, in the world. That's kind of weird. Well, let me, let me kind of explain what, what Paul is saying here. Remember, we've said that in past weeks, Paul is writing to the Colossians because they've been troubled by false teaching. Remember that? Well, from the, le- the rest of Paul's letter, it seems like a part of the false teaching that the Colossians were facing was teaching that focused on the need uh, to placate or to interact with or even to overcome opposing spiritual beings. Uh, So here, Paul seems to be laying the groundwork for his argument against this false teaching later. Paul is affirming the fact, hey, you know what? There actually are powerful, invisible spiritual beings who exercise great influence on human history. The Bible says that's the case. It doesn't always answer all of our questions about that, but that is the clear assertion of the Bible. The Bible affirms, Paul affirms, that Satan and his demons are alive and active in today's world. But Paul is preparing for what he's going to assert later. His point here seems to be that if you have Jesus, you don't actually need any secret techniques for manipulating the spiritual world because Jesus is the firstborn, right? He's the supreme creator of all of those spiritual beings, even if they're in rebellion right now. So to, to maybe make what we're, what we're seeing from Paul uh, transparent about how it applies today, I think this helps us about how we think about the practices of other religions. So most other religions and some unhealthy versions of Christianity trade on giving people special techniques to manipulate the spiritual world. That's what they offer their religious adherents. So some of our charismatic brothers and sisters in the Lord, many of whom know the Lord Jesus, they put a great deal of emphasis on addressing and rebuking things like territorial spirits in evangelism or in rebuking generational spirits of sin in order to gain a higher spiritual life. Or in Roman Catholicism, praying the rosary is supposed to get you points with the Virgin Mary, who is this kind of mediator between the mediator, you and Jesus. And if you get enough points with Mary, she can really get you in good uh, with Jesus because she's his mom. Catholicism advocates the use of things like holy water or staring at sacred images in order to do you spiritual good or sort of get an edge on the spiritual world. Or in a very different religion in Islam, right, making a pilgrimage to Mecca and drinking from the Zemzem well after walking counterclockwise seven times around a special prayer building. That's supposed to increase your chances of inheriting or being awarded eternal life from Allah. Or our Mormon friends and neighbors believe that the wearing of certain clothes is supposed to endow them with certain spiritual protection. That's the teaching of the Mormon church. These special clothes uh, will keep you spiritually safe. They'll enable you to manipulate the spiritual world. So Paul's point here, in light of what he'll say later in the letter, is that because Jesus is the firstborn, 
the creator of all other spiritual beings in the universe. If you've got Jesus, you don't actually need any secret techniques to manipulate the spiritual world. Right? Paul doesn't for a moment deny the reality of the spiritual world. He doesn't deny that Satan and his demons are active and powerful. But for Paul, the key factor is that Jesus is supreme over all authority as its creator. I love this. One commentator put it like this. For those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe has no ultimate terrors. They know that their Redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. Kids, listen, kids, if you belong to Jesus, you don't have to be afraid of the dark because Jesus is bigger than everything that lives in the dark. He's the creator, and if you have him, you are safe. Paul sums up his point in this first verse of his song there at the end of verse, thing, verse 16. Paul writes, All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is both the creator and the point of creation. It's all from him and it's all for him. He's the author of all things and the goal of all things. He's the designer of all things and their purpose. Jesus is preeminent in creation. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you don't believe any of this. You think this song is really rather like a Disney song. Maybe it's fun to sing, but it's full of falsehood. Well, friend, if that's you, first, I'd love to talk to you after the service about why we believe that this is the true song, that this song really describes the world that we live in. Uh, and second, just allow me to ask you, where are you from? And what are you for? What are your answers to those questions? Right? Are you the chance occurrence of an unlikely and ultimately inexplicable physical process? And do you have any purpose beyond doing what you feel like doing because of your brain chemistry and your hormones? Friend, the Bible's claim is that you have dignity and worth because you're from Jesus, the creator who made you in his image. And that your purpose is to know him and to be loved by him. Jesus Christ is preeminent in creation. And because we are his creation, he must be preeminent in our lives. And this is precisely the problem. Because if we're honest, we would much rather be preeminent in our own lives we'd rather be God than let Jesus be God. The Bible talks a lot about specific sins uh, that people commit, specific rules that we break in defiance of God's law. Think of the Ten Commandments. The Bible teaches that at the root of our specific sins is the fact that our hearts actually want God's throne. Our hearts want the preeminence and the authority that belongs to Jesus. Uh, naturally, we want the planets of all our circumstances and all of the people in our life to revolve not around Jesus, the Sun King, but around us. And when they don't, or so that they will, we sin. All right, when we are rude to others... Often it's because in our minds, we're the point. And if you're not about that agenda, I'm willing to snub or mistreat you or to punish you if that makes me feel good. Right? When we get angry, almost always we're angry because things are not working according to the sovereign counsel of our will. Right? The, the heart of our sexual immorality is that we tell God, actually, I'm the king of my body, not you. And actually, I want those other people to exist for the sake of me and my gratification on my terms, 
whether in my mind or on a screen or in reality, right? When we hate and envy other people, it's because, usually, because they're obscuring our glory in whatever domain we've carved out for ourselves. When we lie, nine times out of ten, it's to get something that we don't have the right to or to prevent our mistakes from damaging our glory. Like we, we lie because if the truth comes out, actually kind of reveals that we're not that great. Right, friend, can you see why our sin is such a big deal? If the first verse of Paul's song is true, if Jesus is the firstborn, and if we've lived in defiance of his reign with disregard for his rules, vying for his preeminence, can you see why our sin is so offensive and even ugly, right? We're interrupting the piano concert with a kazoo solo, right? We're dancing badly in front of the TV screen. We're mouthing off loudly during the wedding ceremony. In other words, it's all about Jesus. And when we sin, we're making it all about us. Look, even before our sin ruins our lives and makes other people miserable, can you see what a, how offensive our sin is if Jesus is who Paul says that he is? Can you see that God would be right and just to oppose rebellion against his firstborn? Friends, if we are honest, we, I, you, have defied Jesus Christ's preeminence in creation. And so it is good news that the second verse of our song, much more briefly than the first, is all about Jesus Christ's preeminence in redemption. Again, that's our second point, much more briefly this morning. Jesus is preeminent in redemption. Look briefly with me at the bridge or the centerpiece of Paul's song in verse 17 and the first half of 18. Paul writes in verse 17, and he is before all things, both in time and in rank, and in him all things hold together. So much more we could say about that. Jesus didn't make just make the world. Jesus keeps the world existing the Word of God, the person of Jesus, is the active, sovereign, all-sustaining, all-ordering principle of creation. We need to move on. Verse 18, and He is the head of the body, the church. You see how Paul slides into the subject of his second verse with the last line of that centerpiece? Friend, listen, if you know yourself to be someone who has rebelled against King Jesus. The good news is that there's a group of people that King Jesus pardons for their rebellion and unites to himself as a body to a head. And that people is called the church. Isn't it interesting, as Paul's soaring at 50,000 feet, and he's mentioning really the outline of the story of the world, he doesn't mention that Jesus saves individual people. He says that Jesus saves a body called the church. Look how, parts, I'm sorry, how Paul starts the second verse of his song there in the middle of verse 18. Paul says, he is the beginning. The beginning of what, right? I thought we were done talking about creation Paul is saying here that Jesus is the beginning of the new creation. Look what he says next. Paul says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Right? Paul is saying here that because Jesus died and rose from the dead, Jesus occupies in the new creation the office that Adam had occupied in the old creation. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. So listen, this is the story of the Bible in three words. Creation, fall, recreation. Or four words, new creation. Creation, fall, recreation. Creation, God the Son, the divine firstborn, creates the world perfectly good and puts Adam as the human firstborn head of it. Fall, Adam, the firstborn, rebels against God's authority and plunges the world into death and alienation from God. Creation, fall, creation, fall, recreation. God the Son becomes a man 
enters the world to fix what Adam broke, to do what Adam should have, to die the death that Adam brought into the world and to rise from the dead so that in his resurrection, he could inaugurate the new creation, which at its fulfillment will be nothing less than a new heavens and a new earth. And guess who's in charge of the new heavens and the new earth? Jesus, because he's the firstborn from the dead. That's the story of the Bible. That's the story in which you and I live. And you see that Paul writes that this story has the shape that it does for a particular purpose. God authored the story of history in a specific way for a specific reason. The reason that God has orchestrated the story of the universe this way, with Jesus as the sovereign creator and Jesus as the dying and rising rescuer, is there in verse 18. Paul says, it's so that in everything he might be preeminent. Do you see what Paul is saying, right? Paul is saying the story of the world is a song about the preeminence of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect picture of the all-glorious Father. He's the creator of all that exists. He's the firstborn ruler over all that exists. He has total authority over every spiritual being he's created. He came first. He ranks first. He holds it all together. Jesus pardons the rebels who defy his rule. Jesus becomes a man to do the job that his human image bearer Adam failed to do. Jesus undergoes the death that we brought into his creation. Jesus busts out of the grave as the beginning, and for the second time, the firstborn over the new creation. Friends, it's all about Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one. Paul writes there in verse 18 that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. Friends, our world is, as we've said, out of order at the moment. But God has acted in Jesus Christ to bring everyone and everything back into submission to himself, either as his conquered enemies or as his pardoned children. Friend, listen. The Bible says that one day Jesus will be preeminent in your life, either as the judge of your rebellion or as the king by whom you are saved. Friends, listen, this passage, this song is true, and we are the pretenders. We are rather like Aladdin and Simba and Elsa, living our lives as a selfish tribute to our own glory. But our big need is not for a genie or a stroke of luck or a second shot at being king. Our big need is for forgiveness from God for our rebellion. We'll close with this. This is the utterly shocking good news of Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Look at what Jesus has done there in the very last line of our song. What does it say that Jesus has done? It says that he's made peace. How? By the blood of his cross. You get it? This Jesus, the firstborn, was crucified to make peace with his enemies. The image of the invisible God was beaten until he was unrecognizable. The firstborn of all creation was despised and rejected by men. The creator of thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities was tried and condemned by a kangaroo court. The one who is before all things and who holds all things together had his body broken under the curse of God as he sustained in existence the ones who killed him. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel the preeminent one died a bloody death on a cross as a substitute for sinners 
like you and me, so that anyone who would believe in him might find peace with God and be forgiven. Listen, this is what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is singing this song with Paul. It's confessing Jesus is Lord and we are not. It's to confess that in wonderful mercy, this Lord has died and risen to make peace with us and is to join Paul in praise and adoration to the firstborn, preeminent in creation, preeminent in redemption. Christian, whatever your circumstances are like right now, your biggest need and my biggest need is for a bigger picture of this Jesus. We need to see in Jesus' image that God is good and glorious. We need to view our world as the work of his hands. We need to remember that there is no force in nature or supernatural over which the one who died for us is not sovereign. We need to know that Jesus ranks first, first in time, first in dignity, first in authority, first in glory, first in our hearts. We need to know that all things even the terribly hard and mysterious things are going according to Jesus' sovereign plan. We need to hold fast to the head of the body, the wellspring of our new life. We need to recall that Jesus is the beginning of the new creation by whom God is making everything new. We need to know that because Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, whoever lives and believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live we need to rejoice from the bottom of our hearts that this Jesus has shed his blood for us to bring us peace with God. Brothers and sisters, let's sing about this Jesus now. But before we do, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the preeminent one, preeminent in creation, preeminent in redemption. God, would you grant us hearts that sing this song, that rejoice in and bow before the glory of Jesus, the firstborn. Would you do these things for our joy and for your glory? Through Christ, amen.